Welcome to the Activated People Podcast, the program that showcases social justice topics and the activists fighting to make America a more equitable and just society. Our mission to activate people and inspire movements. I'm your host, Kofi Annan. My very first guest is Mr. Daryl Davis. Mr. Davis is a racial justice activist and award-winning blues musician that has played with legends such as B.B. King, Chuck Berry, and Jerry Lee Lewis. However, what he is perhaps most famous for is his unorthodox and somewhat controversial style of activism. For the past 30 years, Mr. Davis, who is a black man, has traveled the country befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan in the hope of convincing them to leave the organization. Mr. Davis claims to have converted over 200 Klan members. He is the author of the best-selling book, Clandestine Relationships, and was featured on several major networks such as CNN and CBS at 60 Minutes, among others. And he is the subject of the 2016 documentary, Accidental Courtesy, Daryl Davis, Race and America. Mr. Davis, welcome to the program. It is an honor to have you as my first guest. It is my, my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I, like most people, find your work absolutely fascinating, and I just can't wait to learn more about this. So I'm just so thrilled to have this the opportunity to speak to you today. Before we get into the work, though, if you won't mind, would you please tell our listeners a little bit about your background? You're a Chicago native, but you actually spent a large chunk of your childhood overseas. What was that like, and um, how how did that experience shape your perceptions of race relations? Well, that was one of the best experiences of my life, and I think everyone uh, who has the opportunity to travel should definitely take advantage of it because it, it just, I mean, no pun intended, but it certainly gives you a more worldly perspective. I'm, I'm the child of parents in the U.S. Foreign Service, so my dad was American Embassy, and, you know, we traveled to various countries. We, we lived there for two years, then come back home here to the uh, United States. We'll be here for a few months, maybe a year and then uh, travel abroad again. I lived in Africa for 10 years in different countries. I lived in Europe, uh, visited many countries in between. So between traveling with my parents as a child, combined with my travels now as an adult, a professional musician, I have been in a total of uh, 56 different countries on uh, six continents. Wow. And what I've, you know, I've experienced a lot of different uh, ethnicities, cultures, religions, etc. And all of that has helped shape uh, my perspectives, of course, you know, especially, you know, it happening during my formative years as a child. But the one thing that I have discovered that no matter how far I go from the United States, no matter, no matter how many different countries I've been in and people that I've seen, at the end of the day, what I found out is we all are human beings. Uh, race is a man-made construct. We all are the same race. We may have the only difference between us may be cultural and perhaps, you know, some physical characteristics. But at the end of the day, we all are human beings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Obviously, not everyone feels this way. So what was your first recollection of being targeted or treated differently because of your race? Okay. Well, let me back up a little bit more. Uh, you know, when I was overseas in the 19, uh, starting in the 1960s, I went to Ghana. And then we uh, lived in uh, in, in uh, Ethiopia, then Guinea, and Senegal, different places, and then in Europe. But when I first went over, uh, I was in school, of course, you know, elementary school, and 
My classes were filled with other children from Nigeria, Italy, uh, Germany, France, Sweden, Japan, Russia, anybody who had embassies in the countries in which we were assigned, all of their kids and us went to the same school. So I was around diversity, multiculturalism from day one when I was overseas. However, when I would return home back here to my own country, I was either in all black schools or black and white schools, meaning uh, in the still segregated school or in the newly integrated school. And, yeah. you know, that, that diversity that I had overseas was not present. There were not uh, any Asians or Hispanics or other people. It was just black kids and white kids. That was it. So I was already prepared when diversity came here to the United States. Uh, when I was overseas, I was literally living about 12 years into the future. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's all I knew. I mean, you know, color was, was nothing to me. So one time when I came home after an assignment at age 10, I was in the fourth grade, we were uh, living in Belmont, Massachusetts, and I was one of two black children in the entire school. And uh, several of my guy friends were members of the uh, Cub Scouts. They invited me to join, and I joined. And we had a parade from Lexington to Concord, Massachusetts. And people were cheering us, but somewhere down the parade route, there was a small group of uh, white spectators. And I remember it being, uh, you know, a few kids, maybe my age, a year or two older, and some adults who were throwing things. And I was getting hit. I was getting hit with bottles, soda pop cans, and just general debris from the street. And being naive, because I'd never experienced anything like this, my first uh, inclination was, oh, you know, those people over there don't like the scouts. I didn't realize that I was the only scout getting hit until my, uh, my, my scout leaders came rushing back and covered me with their own bodies. And these, you know, these were white scout leaders. And I was the only black participant in this whole parade. Um, hmm. I asked, I said, well, why are they hitting me? Why are they hitting me? And all they would do is just rush me along, telling me everything would be okay. And they never answered the question. When I got hmm. home, my mother and father, who were not at the parade, were putting Band-Aids on me and getting me all cleaned up and asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? I told them, you know, I did not fall down. I told them what had happened. And for the first time in my life, my parents sat me down and explained to me what racism was. Now, I'm an only child, so I didn't have big brothers and sisters to learn things from. Um, when they told me about this thing called, believe it or not, I had never heard the word or term racism. I had no reason to. You know, I I lived amongst everybody from all over the world, and we all got along. Uh, When they told me about this thing called racism, I had no clue what they were talking about. And for the first time in my life, I did not believe my parents. I literally thought that my parents were lying to me. My 10-year-old brain could not get around the idea that someone who had never seen me before, someone who had never spoken to me and who, and who knew nothing about me would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. That was totally incomprehensible to me. Well, about a month, or, a month and a half or so later, on April the 4th of that same year, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I remember it very clearly. Nearby Boston, 
Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, New York, Nashville, uh, Philadelphia, my hometown, Chicago, Detroit, all burned to the ground uh, with rioting and, and destruction and violence, all in the name of this thing called racism. So then it was then that I realized my parents had not lied to me. That this phenomenon does exist. Now, while I realize now that it existed, I did not understand why. Why are people racist? So I formed a question in my mind at that age, and that question was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 50-some years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. Wow. Your philosophy dealing with Ku Klux Klan members, basically the foundation started at a very young age. Yes, it did. So what was your first encounter with the Ku Klux Klan member? My first positive experience was I was playing um, in a country band in a, in a bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And the Silver Dollar Lounge was a predominantly, if not all, white bar. It was a, a trucker's bar, truck stop bar. Well, I was in that bar my first time. The band had played there many times before, all-white band, and I'm the only black guy in the bar. And when I came off the uh, bandstand after the first set of music, a white gentleman came up behind me and put his arm around my shoulder and said he really enjoyed the music, and I thanked him and shook his hand. And then he pointed at the bandstand and said, I've seen this here band before, but I had never seen you. Where did you come from? And I explained, yeah, he probably did see the band because they had played there before, but this was my first time. I just joined the band. And he said, well, man, I feel like you're piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, I was not offended at all, but I was rather shocked and surprised that this man, who appeared to be maybe, I don't know, 15, 18 years older than me, did not know the origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's style of piano playing. Uh, and I explained to the guy that he got it, that Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rockabilly, rock and roll came from. Well, the, the man was incredulous. You know, he, did, he did not believe me. He did not believe that Jerry Lee got anything from black people. Jerry Lee had invented that style. He never heard anybody play like that, uh, any, any black person play like that other than me. So, and so how did he take that news? Was he, was he offended when when he told him that, or was he was no, he? Uh... He, wasn't he wasn't offended. He just thought I was wrong, you know. You know, he, you know that, that that I was making this up. I mean, he wasn't offended. You know, he thought I was I was you know joking with him or something. And I told him, I said, look, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a very good friend of mine. You know, he told me himself. You know, where he learned to play, who he saw play like that, and copied. Um, the man didn't believe that either. But he was fascinated enough with me that he wanted me to have a drink with him. And then he announced that this was the first time he'd ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. But I said, why? How, how can this be? And I prodded him because he, at first he didn't answer me. And then he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I burst hmm. out laughing at him. I, you know, now I knew he was joking. Because I knew a lot about the plan. I have almost every book written on the plan. And in none of my books does it talk about how a Klansman will come up to a black man and put his arm around his shoulder and, and praise his uh, talent and want to hang out and buy him a drink. It doesn't work that way. So I was laughing, 
He went inside his wallet, produced his membership card, and handed it to me. And when I saw it, I recognized the Ku Klux Klan uh, insignia, mm-hmm. and I started laughing, and I gave it back. But, you know, uh, we were friendly with one another. He was very curious about me, and naturally, I was very curious about him. But it did not dawn on me right then in that moment um, that, you know, that the answer to my question was sitting right across the table from me. You know, he, he'd given me his phone number and wanted me to call him whenever I was to return to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, to see this black guy play piano like Jerry Lee. So I, I would call him, you know, every six weeks. I'd say, hey, man, you know, come on down. You know, you know, we're there this weekend. And he'd come, and Klansmen and Klanswomen would come along with him. But it wasn't until much later that it dawned on me, you know, that the answer to my question that had been plaguing me since age 10, how can you hate me when you don't even know me, was right there. Because I had been looking for the answer to that question. None of my books answered it. Nobody I knew could answer it. People just said, well, people just hate. You know, I don't know why. They just hate. Well, you know, that was not good enough for me. I needed a concrete, rational reason. So it dawned on me then, you know, like I said, months later, Hey, Daryl, you know, the answer to your question was right there in front of you. Listen, who better to ask than to ask someone who would go so far as to join an organization who has over 100 years of practicing hating people who do not know them and who do not uh, believe as they believe? Huh? So what, what is the answer? Is, is there an answer or, or what have you no, discovered? No, answer. They don't know. <laughs> they don't know. But but yeah, I, I took a long journey, and I continue on this journey uh, seeking that answer. And so I figured, okay, you know what? I'm going to get that guy. I'm going to write a book because <clears throat> all the books that I have on the KKK are written by white authors. Obviously, a white author has easier access to them. And, you know, I can sit there and interview them without any fear of uh, – ramification or whatever, or a white author could join the Klan undercover, get the story, get out and write about it, or an ex-Klansman, ex-Klanswoman. So my book would be the first book written by a black author on the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, from the perspective of sitting and and interviewing with them. So uh, I decided I'm going to get a hold of that guy and have him fix me up with some Klan leaders and members, and then I'm going to travel up north down south, Midwest and West, and interview plant people all over the country. And that's exactly what I did. Do you have a process or do you approach every situation the same? Do you have like a methodology of, of deciding um, who to interact with, how to interact with them, or, um, or do you just kind of take every situation uh, differently? Well, yes and no. A Klansman or Klanswoman is not stamped out of a standard cookie cutter. They come from all different walks of life. Um, they have all different educational levels. You know, there's a third grade dropout. Um, and then there's, there's the uh, college graduate. And then there's President of the United States. President Warren G. Harding was sworn into the Ku Klux Klan in the green room of the White House. Uh, Harry Truman, uh, who was president at one time, before he became president, he joined the Klan for a short time. He didn't like it. He got out. Um, Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black 
was in the Ku Klux Klan when he got the call to be on the Supreme Court. He had to leave the Klan to sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, Senator Robert Byrd, who just died a few years ago um, as the oldest living senator uh, from West Virginia, he was uh, mm-hmm. in the Klan in the 1940s. So, like I said, you know, people who, who have gone no further than third grade and have gone to some of the highest offices in our land um, have been Klan people. So the process differs with the individuals. But initially, I ask a lot of the same questions. Initially, also, uh, I would have my secretary phone these people and set up the interview and not tell them that I was black. Uh, so hmm. if they agreed to the interview, you know, either they might suggest some neutral place or they would invite me over to their house. And there I'd be on their front porch knocking on the door. And, of course, they'd freak out when they realized, you know, this, this person wants to interview them. It's this black guy. Uh, so now, of course, everybody in the plan, if they don't know me, they've heard of me. So the process has changed a little bit. You know, I, I wasn't trying to be deceitful by not um, revealing my skin color until the last moment. The uh, the thing was, um, if if someone was going to interview with me, and let's say they knew that I was black before the interview, I did not want them to have different answers for a black interviewer than they would have for a white interviewer asking the same questions. So I wanted I wanted it to be candid and spontaneous. So you know, one, you know, once they saw me, then they'd realize I'm black, and they could decide right then and there. Okay, um, I'll go ahead and talk to him, or no, I won't. How do you feel about the current president? Some people would, given some of his rhetoric, going back to his campaign and, and obviously continued into his administration, uh, some people say that he is emboldening the Klan and other white supremacist groups. How do you feel about him and, and the role he plays in, in these issues? I feel that Donald Trump uh, is not very presidential, but I feel that he is the best thing that has happened to this country. Uh, in recent years, and let me explain so? that to you. If let's just, let's just say, for example, you were walking down a flight of steps, and heaven forbid you trip and fall down those steps, and you end up with a fractured leg. Uh, you go to the doctor, the doctor takes an X-ray of your leg, and he says, "Well, Kofi, you know the type of fracture you have here. I'm going to have to break your break the bone and reset it so it will heal properly." We've all have heard things like that before. Uh, you got to break something and reset it. Okay. That is exactly what Donald Trump is doing to this country. He is breaking the bone of this country, not through any intelligent design of his own, but through, as you put it, his, his negative rhetoric and all that stuff. When, when Donald Trump gets done, everybody in this country is going to be broken. Now, this country was built on a two-tier society. Um, the top tier being white supremacy, the lower tier being slavery. And over the years, as we progressed, moved upward, um, we each moved in proportion to the other. So in other words, the, the, the lower tier never caught up to the white tier. We, we were still separated. And mm-hmm. now that we're having our bone broken, everybody we all are going to come down to the same level and be on the ground floor. It's like a building collapsing. So now we got to start all even 
in the ground floor and rebuild up. So this time, hopefully, we'll get it right when, when we all are on the same level because we're going to have to depend upon each other to rebuild. So <clears throat> Donald Trump, in, in a sense, is doing us a favor. He's causing us to address uh, these problems that he is creating and emboldening. Uh, without Donald Trump, we wouldn't have the, the, the uh, Me Too movement. Uh, we wouldn't have all these uh, discussions on race, et cetera, because these are things that have existed long before Donald Trump. And we, we Americans, have failed to address the problems of, uh, of uh, racism in this country. We, we don't want to talk about it, and now it's front and center in our face, and we have to address it. I hear you, and I, and I understand your logic. But let's say, for instance, what if he gets reelected? What does that What does that tell us? And then, what does that do for us as far as the healing process? Because I understand what you're saying that you know this could be the wake up call that lets us re-energizes us to work towards a more equitable society. Does his reelection then signal to us America is comfortable in current state? Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment, but um, if if he if he is reelected, then you know we uh, we we fell asleep at the wheel. Um, you know why why are we addressing the Klan and neo Nazis and alt right people in uh, in 2019? The Civil War ended in 1865, and we're and we're fighting over uh, these statues. And Confederate flags in 2019. Uh, that means that, that tells me that you know we we were we we are more reactive than proactive, and perhaps you know we 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 need that foot in our rear ends to, to wake us up and address these problems. And if he gets elected again, then it's definitely a a a serious wake up call. And either either we have to accept that we are lower tier material. Well, we have to do something about it. And I don't mean something about it through violence and the race war and all that kind of crazy stuff that a lot of our white supremacists are calling for, like in Charlottesville. But we have to address these problems. What would you say is your biggest success, your proudest moment in this, in this work? I'm always happy when, when someone uh, turns around and they see the light and they give up that ideology. Uh, I don't like to say that I've converted people, but yes, I've been the impetus for over 200 people leaving these organizations. What I do is I plant the seed, and I nourish that seed, and they end up converting themselves. Um, and if I can help them do that, shine a, a little light, then I'm very happy to do that. Uh, I just I just received an email late last night about about three o'clock in the morning. I happen to be up uh, from a from a Klansman. In uh, Philadelphia, I don't even know this guy, but uh, he knew of me, and um, he tells me he's he's leaving. Um, I've had a lot of influence on him, and he'd like to get together and talk to me on the phone or whatever. You know, I'm happy to help this guy. Wow, that's awesome. Do do you have like a is there like a, one person that you've tried to convert for quite some time? Do, do you have a white whale that just keeps slipping through the grass or just never quite making that transition? No, not really. I mean, like I said, I don't go out and try to convert people. I just go out and try to plant some seeds. Uh, I know for a fact, I know for a fact that 
not everybody is going to change. Uh, there will be people who will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist. However, if one of these people is willing to sit down and have a conversation with you, there is an opportunity to make a difference. And, mm-hmm. and those differences are not going to manifest themselves immediately or overnight. Um, but there will be people who would never change. And then, and then there will be some who do change, but, you know, they, something happens and they revert back to their, to their old ways. But I've had more success than failures. So many of the clan members who you've converted allow you to keep their robes. Why do you accept these and what do you do with them? Okay, well, I keep most of them locked up in a, in a um, off-site location. What I'm going to do with these, these robes and different things that I have, I have all kinds of neo-Nazi stuff, KKK stuff, not just robes and hoods, but uh, rally banners, flags, uh, belt buckles, uh, all, you know, all kinds of stuff, pictures, uh, uh, applications to join the plan, and, you know, you name it. Um, I'm, I'm opening up a museum at some point. I got my 501c3, and I'm looking okay. for a building in which I can house these things and display them. You know, this is a part of American history. Be it good, bad, ugly, or shameful, it's still a part of American history. And people say to me, you know, why don't you burn that stuff, Daryl? No, I'm not going to burn it. You don't burn American history. You know, you may not, you know, fly these flags anymore or, or put them in a park or whatever, but you put them in a museum so people will never forget. It's like the Holocaust Museum. Uh, that was a terrible thing that happened to six million people. But you don't take all that stuff that's in that museum and destroy it because you want to forget about the Holocaust. No. You want people to know your history and know what happened so it's not repeated again. And America has a lot of ugly and shameful secrets uh, that are, are often, all too often, not in our history books. So... If they're not in the history books, you know what? They need to be in the museum. Is the Klan today different than it was when you first started? And if so, how? Uh, and, yeah, and not just the Klan, I guess. If, if maybe just yeah, you, you, all of the, the groups. In a generic term of white supremacy, right? Correct, all, correct. Gotcha. Um, yes, it is a little different. Uh, but, the, but the trends, okay, let, let me just back up for a second. The Klan is the oldest group that um, that practices that white supremacy belief. It was the first and oldest, uh, formed in 1865. Now, back then, and for the longest time, the term was called white supremacy. I am a white supremacist. All right? And people, yeah, that's what I am. Sign me up. Okay? And the membership grew to almost 4 million people nationwide. Now, with that many people, there was a lot of violence, a lot of lynchings, a lot of, you know, atrocities, church burnings, bombings, murders, etc. cetera. Uh, so while there, were, while there were many white people who participated in those things, they didn't care about those atrocities perpetrated upon black people or upon Jewish people, you know, they stuck with the Klan. But there were, but there were many other white people who were involved in, these, in, in the Klan who did not participate in those uh, activities. And when things got so bad, they began dropping out uh, because the term white supremacy carried a lot of that negative, violent, uh, murderous baggage with it. And they didn't want to be associated. You know, they didn't like black people, 
but they did not want to be associated with murder and all that kind of stuff. So they began dropping out, and the membership dwindled. So now, because the term white supremacy or white supremacist became unpalatable, so they had to, to rebrand. And so they changed the term to white separatism. I'm a white separatist. I don't hate black people. I don't hate Jewish people. I just love my own. Black people can have their own schools, their own workplaces, their own neighborhoods, and we should be able to have ours, and Jews can have theirs. That way we don't have to mix, you know, separate but equal. So that is a white separatist. And so people say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I like that. I don't hate them, but I don't want them, you know, going to school with my kids or swimming in my swimming pool. Yeah, yeah, sign me up. I'm a white separatist. So now, do you think that that's a false premise? Do you think that's just they're just saying that? But what they really want for all other races to leave America or to be terminated or what have you? Do yes, you think that's just basically a slippery slope? Absolutely, absolutely. But many of them realize that uh, you know that's not going to happen. You know, short of a, of a race war, which they call Rahoa, by the way, R A H O W A, Rahoa, which stands for racial holy war or for short, the race war. Um, so, you know, you know, being a rational person, you're not, you know, the, the, the black population in this country is 12%. You're not going to get all 12% to go back to Africa. So, you know, you, what's your choice? What, what, what's the second best option? Second best option is separate, separate, you know, white neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, Jewish neighborhoods, et cetera. So, so that's, that's where they come up with this white separatism thing. Now, David Duke, uh, who was a Klan leader at one time, still a white supremacist, um, he was an extreme white supremacist. He would take a map of the United States and take a marker and divide it up, you know, from New York to Washington, D.C., was cordoned off for Jews. All Jews in the country need to live between New York and Washington, D.C. From Washington, D.C. down to Mississippi, that was for black people. And then he'd take California, give it to the Mexicans, the Pacific Northwest, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, Washington State, et cetera. All that was cordoned off uh, for white people. You know, so that's an extreme separatist. You know, he's he's going to divide up the country. You know, and when, when you go beyond that extreme separatism, yes, you, you got supremacy. So, so separatism was the second best option for these people who, who, who you know, in the core, as you put it, believe that we need to get rid of all of, of all non-whites. But knowing that that's not going to happen and being realistic, then I'll settle for, well, if we can't get rid of them, then, then separate them from us. Okay, so so membership uh, increased again uh, because, you know, yeah, you know, I, I like that idea. And then as the membership increased, here comes the violence again. And people begin dropping out again. So membership is down. So now the terms white supremacy and white separatism are both unpalatable. We have to rebrand. So they rebrand with another name. Uh, I'm, I'm a white nationalist. I love my country. I'm a nationalist. Well, of course you're a nationalist if you love your country, but why do you have to prefix it with the word white? Why can't you, why can't you just be a nationalist? You know, do you think it's, do you think it's coincidence that, that our president called himself a nationalist? No, not at all. Do you believe that he basically espouses these same beliefs? I believe he espouses a lot of them, sure. You know, there were fine people on both sides. He wants more people here from Norway 
and not from those uh, asshole countries. Mm. So yeah, of course. I you, mean, you brought up the you brought up the incident in Charlottesville, and I know you also have recently reached out to one of the leaders who who organized that rally in Charlottesville that led to the death of Heather Heyer. Um, how did that that conversation come about, and where are things now as far as that relationship? Uh, well, I reached out to the organizer, uh, Jason Kessler, and uh, he and I have had dinner several times together. Uh, we will continue doing that and talking about it. Uh, Mr. Kessler uh, has his beliefs. He he is not, a, per se, a white supremacist. I think some of his beliefs have changed since the rally. He feels um, uh, remorseful about the uh, about the death of, of uh, Heather Heyer uh, when it first happened. He made a lot of very, very nasty, um, vile comments about Heather Heyer. And he, today he regrets those comments and, and is remorseful regarding her death. Uh, he is, he has become, uh, anti-white supremacist, um, and, uh, anti, you know, Nazi and KKK. Uh, he'd like to do things that would help people come together. He does, he does not believe and white privilege, you know, which he's wrong about. He thinks if anybody has privilege today, it is uh, black people. But I'm continuing to meet with him and have dinner with him and uh, things like that and exchange ideas. I do see, a, you know, a change in him. Uh, I know a lot of the other people who were who were at the, uh, the Charlottesville incident, Richard Spencer, uh, Jeff Scoop, who, who uh, headed up the uh, NSM, National Socialist Movement, which was the largest uh, neo-Nazi group in this country, uh, he just stepped aside. And I, I know him very, you know, pretty well, and I've been talking with him as well. What do you think led to the change in, in his way of thinking? You talk about Mr. Kessler? or Mr. Mr. Kessler. I think that this thing blew up a lot bigger than he expected it to be, and that he lost control of his um of his occasion um you know he should have known better that you know if you're going to try to unite the right you don't invite neo-nazis and ku klux klan and all these other people all white people you know to your party and 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 not expect any kind of violence when uh you know these groups have a history of that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh you know it's just a pressure cooker you know, without without the lid on it, you know, the, the lid's getting ready to blow. And now you know, it's resulted in, a, in in not a death, but a murder. Yeah, I want to cover a couple of other things here, so we're going to have to move on. But I would like to urge our listeners to visit our website, theactivatedpeople.com, to learn more about this particular story in Charlottesville. Mr. Davis was gracious enough to provide us with an article chronicling the incredible experience getting to know Mr. Kessler, which includes his story eventually walking Mr. Kessler's wife down the aisle. Am I correct? I mean, that, that, that was not Mr. Kessler. That, that was the uh, the Imperial Wizard. Oh, that was him. Okay. Was that day. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, but a, but a fascinating story of, about how this that relationship has evolved over the last couple of years. Moving on a little bit here, uh, I believe a lot of people are are desperate to see change, but most of these people are calling for tougher approaches to dealing with people who espouse these hateful ideologies. You, on the other hand, are taking a, a much different approach by trying to connect with these individuals on a human level. Um, clearly, you're having some success, but the two criticisms. Uh, of your approach are that uh, a trying to befriend these people are in fact 
somewhat counterproductive because you're in, in essence normalizing and humanizing terrorists. And B, uh, why not spend your energy on systemic racism and discrimination instead of worrying about the members of the, of the Ku Klux Klan or, or organizations like this? Now, I will say that I can see some valid arguments in both of these points. Um, there are a lot of misguided people who have been indoctrinated into some violent group or the other. But generally speaking, few people empathize with them. And to the other point, even if members of the Klan were to dwindle significantly tomorrow, uh, it wouldn't necessarily solve a lot of the problems with regards to like criminal justice reform, education, economic inequities, which are easily having a much bigger negative impact on African Americans. So, what do you say to your critics? I say several things. One, systemic racism is is definitely a problem. No question about it. Uh, that's a system that's, that's that's been put into motion. So who is behind the system? Individuals. I don't have a problem with anybody spending their time <clears throat> addressing the systemic. I prefer to deal one-on-one. Let me point out something to you. I recently um, was the impetus for, for a guy uh, leaving the Nazi movement and KKK movement, and I can promise you this guy would have been the next Dylan Roof. Mm-hmm. Dylan Roof murdered nine people, all right? Supposing I, I was able to talk to Dylan Roof before he went in that church and had an impact on him, nine people would still be alive today. It's not just a matter of turning one person. Okay, so let's say, I, I, uh, let's say 25 Klansmen leave the, uh, the, uh, the Klan, 25 of those people could have been 25 Dylan Roofs and multiply that times nine people they murder. If we're talking numbers, do you ever inspire other people to, to take up your approach and uh, that one of your goals to, to make less about you and more about a, a movement of people who are trying to reach out to some of these kind members? Absolutely. It's never been about me. I am a musician. I enjoy being on stage and playing and entertaining people. I got into music to make people happy. Yeah. It's not about me. It's about my society. And I see that my society is going down the wrong path. And, I, and our society can only become one of two things. It can become that which we sit back and let it become, which we've, which we've done a good job of doing. That's why we're in this shift today. Or two, it can become what we stand up and make it become. And I've chose to stand up and make it become what I want to see. I want to see a more harmonious society. I say we need to talk with our enemies. And uh, everybody else that may, may say, no, you know, you know, you know we, we are befriending them, we're giving them a platform, we are humanizing them, et cetera, et cetera. Will you show me a better solution? You show me how many Klan robes they, that they have collected and gotten to quit. And I've even got Nazis and Klan people, former Nazis and Klan people, coming out with me on tour, speaking out against their former organizations and helping get more people out of those organizations and prevent others from joining. So you show me a better way, I'm happy to follow it. Well, absolutely, absolutely. 
Well, Mr. Davis, thank you again for agreeing to sit down with me today. Like you said, you're a pioneer. You're definitely blazing the trail along a very challenging path, and I wish you the very best. To the listeners, if you would like to learn more about Daryl Davis's incredible work, please check out his book, Clandestine Relationships, or visit DarylDavis.com. Again, I'm your host, Kofi Annan, and you are listening to the Activated People podcast, where we activate people and inspire movements. To read Daryl's story and other social justice topics, or meet like-minded activists, visit theactivatedpeople.com. Until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.